0: Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Carol Shields Auditorium at Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 Territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Innu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 41st Nation in Treaty 3 Territory. In this episode, we will be discussing Half of a Yellow Sun by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and before I read this book... I always associated Biafra with Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys. Across the table from me is...
1: Hi, I'm Trevor from the Louis Riel Library, and I'm looking forward to the companion book to this one called Harrison's Cooking with Beets and Other European Things. And across the table from me is... Uh,
2: I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and to use what I think is a Nigerian proverb, I hope to not speak with water in my mouth during this recording.
0: Dear readers, we wouldn't do this without you. Get in touch and let us know what you think of the books we're reading and maybe suggest something we should read in the future. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Before we
1: dig in, let's do a quick check-in with the panel. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. It's good to be back. I uh, stumbled across a book between uh, the last recording and now, which I thought might be uh, relevant to our interests. Maybe it goes under the category of don't judge a book by its cover, because this book is called Journeys of Simplicity. And it's, you know, in the 179. So I'm thinking this is probably a book of short quotations, inspirational quotations about mindfulness and traveling lightly, spiritually and stuff. And no, it's really about everyday carry items that famous people Mm -hmm. had. Uh, Not only real people, but fictional people. So, for example, Marcel Duchamp, who was a French painter in the early part of the uh, 20th century. This is what it says. Never a suitcase. Two shirts worn, one on top of the other, and a toothbrush in his jacket pocket. Another one, of course, Bilbo Baggins, the famous hobbit. A borrowed dark green hood, a little weather-stained. A borrowed dark green cloak, too large. A lot of pocket handkerchiefs, pipe, tobacco a forgotten hat, walking stick, and money. But the one that I thought you would both enjoy is they have the Arctic Turn, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which if we can think back to a few months ago, we read the novel Migrations. And I won't read the whole summary, but it tells us about the Arctic Turn and how it has quite a remarkable uh, migration pattern, traveling over 22,000 miles in an annual round trip. And then the list of items that the Arctic Tern carries... It's a blank page. It just, just brings themselves. So if anyone's interested in reading more about what famous people have, there's a crazy story in here about Werner Herzog. It's called Journeys of Simplicity, and you can find it at your local public library.
2: I don't think we talked about everyday carries on air, though, right?
1: Maybe not. You're right. I think that might be one of the maybe the pre-recording conversations we've had, which yeah. uh, may be only open to the platinum levels of <laughs>
2: Join yeah. our Patreon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, for those that may not know, Everyday Carry, or EDC, See. are is a bit of a movement of people that like to talk about what they have in their pockets. And Dennis and I are, I wouldn't say we're enthusiasts, but we're EDC curious. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds fair. <laughs> yeah.
2: EDC. Yeah, you had that wonderful buff last time that you could use in a variety of ways. Yeah, that yeah. you yeah. always have. 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 In my yeah. And
1: yeah. you identified not one, but two whistles upon your yes. person. Yes, yes. And, of course, keys and a small blade and, uh, you know, other handy, useful items. And, of course, for me, I always like to think of my wristwatch. Mm -hmm. See, this is all the content (laughs) that if you uh, subscribe to the uh, premium channel, which, of course, I'm joking, there is no premium channel. I don't want to get us in trouble with our bosses, but just so you know. There's lots of stuff that we could talk about.
0: And speaking of things we talked about last time, Toby had recommended the British TV show Taskmaster Mm -hmm. in her thing. And I followed up on it because it sounded cool. And I'm now about to start the fourth series. Oh,
2: you're deep in.
0: Yeah, it's fun. It's so good. It is a fun series. So have
1: you watched the season that has Richard Osman? Yes. Okay. Yeah.
0: And the funny thing is, you know, he's six foot seven, so he's like really tall, and he's not the tallest person on the show. <laughs> so,
1: uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, the Taskmaster, Greg Davies, is a giant. Hmm.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, and speaking of recommendations, Dan, you've mentioned a couple of times over the podcasts about Ellery Queen stories. Mm-hmm. So I was curious and I picked one up uh, since the last time we recorded Ellery Queen and the Egyptian cross mystery, I think. And yeah, super interesting. And you're right. There's a point where it stops. It says, all right, you have all the clues you need now going forward. So I thought that was great. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Okay. I'd never read one before. but Did yeah. you
2: solve it? <laughs>
1: Did, I did you solve it? I did not. Mm. No, no, I didn't. No. <laughs> that was always the case for me, too. <laughs> yeah.
2: Did you give it time? Like, did you reach that point and then just stop reading and think about it? Or
1: I mean, by time, I may have given it a moment or two. But it wasn't like yeah. I put... It wasn't really like, you know, writing down diagrams or times <laughs> and stuff. But, you know, I was enjoying the mystery like I would a normal mystery. But then I thought, this is a good moment to just take a little pause. I've got all of the... The evidence in front of me, and let's see where it goes. Yeah, and I thought it was pretty faithful. Like I thought there weren't any kind of last minute like tricks when they played. I mean, some of it was pretty like, oh oh, come on. But at least it was sort of like, okay, yeah, I know for sure. Yeah, I remember that was mentioned on you know chapter three. And they they did play
0: fair. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of playing fair, you tuned in to listen to us talk about half of a yellow sun. So we're gonna jump Mm -hmm. into it now. First, Toby is going to tell us about the author, and then Trevor will give us a summary of the book.
2: Okay. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She was born September fifteenth, nineteen 1977, in Nugu, Nigeria. She's the fifth of six children in an Igbu family. She was raised in Yusuka, a university town where she grew up on campus. Her father was a professor of statistics, and her mother was the university's first female registrar. At 19, she left Nigeria to study in the United States, first at Drexel University in Philadelphia and then at Eastern Connecticut State University, where she received her bachelor's degree in 2001. In 2003, she completed a master's degree in creative writing at Johns Hopkins University, um, and that was the year she published her first novel, Purple Hibiscus, which won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize for the Best First Book. Her second novel, Half of a Yellow Sun, was published in 2006. It received the Orange Prize and the Women's Prize and was adapted into a movie. Uh, In 2008, she completed her second master's degree in African studies from Yale. That year, she was also awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant. Uh, In 2009, she published a collection of stories, The Thing Around Your Neck. Her third novel, Americana, came out in 2013 and won the National Book Critics Award, and I'll give a plug for that one. It is excellent. She's delivered two landmark TED Talks. Her 2009 talk, The Danger of a Single Story, discusses the dominance of the white experience in the literary canon and has been viewed over 12 million times. In 2012, her TED Talk, We Should All Be Feminists, which has over 8 million views, started a worldwide conversation about feminism and was published as a book in 2014. It was also sampled in a Beyonce music video. And I really recommend those two talks. She's such a great speaker. She's so charismatic and um, she's talked about her love of fashion and she always looks so, so good. Those are excellent. Other published works of her include Dear Ijawale or A Feminist Manifesto and 15 Suggestions. That's from 2017. Uh, Notes on Grief from 2022, which was a memoir based on her father's death and Mama's Sleeping Scarf, which is a children's book. In Nigeria, she founded the Farafina Trust Creative Writing Workshop, which is a program where aspiring Nigerian writers spend time workshopping with Adichie and other international writers she brings to Lagos. She has 16 honorary degrees as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She is married to a Nigerian doctor, has a daughter, and divides her time between Nigeria and the U.S.
1: That's a solid biography. Yeah. yeah. All right. So as I read through this, uh, I don't know if you'd call this a summary or a synopsis. I I think this might be a summary. No, I think this might be a synopsis.
2: What's the difference?
1: Uh, I don't know. I feel <laughs> like this just feels more like a synopsis. A summary, I feel like... Uh, no, maybe it's the other way around. I feel like a summary is more plot-heavy, whereas maybe a synopsis is more just giving you the major themes. I've gone a little more plot-heavy than I maybe normally do. Okay. Uh, but. I'm not sure if I'm using those terms correctly. We'll we'll trust you, Trevor. All right. And also, just, I mean, we've all done a little bit of research on pronunciation, but none of us are Nigerian, so uh, just uh, apologies ahead of time if we're not quite getting the pronunciation of the names or place names correctly, but that's all I'll say about that for now. So this novel, Half of a Yellow Sun, takes place in Nigeria prior to and during the Nigerian Civil War. It jumps between the early 1960s and the late 1960s, and the effect of the war is shown through the relationships of the five main characters we meet in the story. Their lives drastically change and are torn apart by the brutality of the Civil War and decisions they make in their personal lives. So who are these characters? Well, we meet them in the early 1960s and are introduced to them one at a time. We have Ugu, a 13-year-old village boy who moves in with Odinigbu to work as his houseboy, and Odinigbu is a professor of mathematics at the University in Unsuka. He frequently entertains intellectuals to discuss the political turmoil in Nigeria, and he supports pan-Africanism, socialism, and other so-called radical ideas. Ugu is observant and a quick learner. His world expands as he absorbs the energy in Odinibu's household. But life changes for Ugu when Onibu's girlfriend, Olana, moves in with them. Ubu forms a strong bond with both of them and is a very loyal houseboy. Olana has a twin sister, Kaine, a woman with a dry sense of humor, tired by the pompous company she runs for her father. Olana and Kaine's father is a wealthy businessman, one of the nouveau riche who benefits from Britain's colonial economy in Nigeria. And Keine's lover, Richard Churchill, is an English writer who goes to Nigeria to explore Ibu Uku art. And that sort of sets the stage with the characters. So then we jump ahead four years, and trouble is brewing between the Hausa and the Ibu people, and hundreds of people die in massacres, including Olana's beloved auntie and uncle. A new republic called Biafra is created by the Ibu. As a result of the conflict, Olana, Onigbu, their young daughter, who they refer to only as Baby, and Ugwu are forced to flee Unsuka. They finally end up in the refugee town of Umuya where they suffer and struggle due to food shortages, the constant air raids, and the environment of paranoia. And there were also allusions to a conflict between Olana and Kanye Richard and Kanye, and between Olana and Odenigbu. Don't find out till later what happened. So we find out later because we jump back to the early 1960s when we learn that Onigbu has slept with a village girl, Amala, who then has his baby. Olana is furious at his betrayal and sleeps with Richard in a moment of liberation. She goes back to Onigbu, and when they later learn that Amala refused to keep her newborn daughter, Olana decides that they would keep her and raise her. During the war, Olana, Onigbu, Baby, and Ugu live with Kanye and Richard, where Kanye was running a refugee camp. Their situation is hopeless, as they have no food or medicine. Ugu gets conscripted into the Biafran army and witnesses the horrors of war up close, even participating in the gang rape of a local barmaid. Kanye decides to trade across enemy lines, but does not return, even after the end of the war a few weeks later. And the book ends ambiguously with the reader not knowing if Kanye lives. Oogwu, back from the war, now has to live with the knowledge of his actions, including finding out that his own sister was the victim of a gang rape in their home village during the war. And perhaps this is why Ugu is driven to write down his account of the war in a book titled, The World Was Silent When We Died. And in a bit of meta fiction, his book is interspersed throughout this novel, but we don't learn the uh, authorship of it till the very end. A Good
2: summary. Yeah.
1: Is that right? Okay. Yeah,
2: that was a lot.
1: It was a lot. But I felt that it covers maybe everything. Well, well a lot that we, yeah. Yeah.
0: There's a lot in this book. Oh, So, so how did you guys find it?
2: I liked this book. I didn't love it. What I liked about it was the characters and the relationships between the characters and how they change throughout the novel. But the war stuff I found really draggy. Um, just any time it started talking about the coup or the military or politicians or towns that fell or people fleeing to other towns, I just I found that difficult to get through. I really could have used a map of Nigeria, my geography of Nigeria. I don't I'm not very familiar with the country, so I really could have used a map. I think that would have helped me be more invested in the war stuff. Also, I don't know about you two, but when I read a book, if there's a name, like a person or a place I can't pronounce, I just gloss over it. Like I don't take the time to sound it out in my head. And that really bit me in the butt here because there's so many names that start with O and I I got a lot of people confused, but then I I think a lot of the time it didn't really matter. So yeah, so overall I liked it, but, but didn't love it.
1: Well, you know, uh, me and maps. So the first thing I did was dial up uh, the old uh, Google Maps, because I agree with you. Uh, I think understanding the geography of Nigeria and these places really does play into the story and trying to understand where these uh, the people live and where they're moving to. It was tricky because sometimes these village names have changed or they don't exist anymore. So I was looking at sort of a modern map of Nigeria, and I think I probably could have done better with a map from the 60s or maybe a map that showed the different areas where where Biafra was. And I'll be honest, like, I'll just show my ignorance right now. Before reading this book, I had never heard of Biafra. I didn't know anything about it. I I understood that, of course, in the 60s, there were some tumultuous times in in, uh, Africa. So for me, I read the book like as if it were a, a page turning thriller in the sense that these things were happening and I didn't know the outcome. I sort of, in the back of my mind, as I was reading it, had a bit of dread because I'm thinking, well, I've never heard of Biafra. So if they succeeded, I probably would have heard of Biafra by now. <laughs> and so I'm thinking all of, all of the uh, idealism that uh, Onigbu embodied at the beginning of the book and then was so infectious and Uguu kind of observed that, I just was thinking, oh, this is, this is all going to go bad. But it went bad in sort of unexpected ways. And what I really enjoyed about this book was that, yes, it was a a chronicle of a time period in a certain time, in a certain place. But it also was a character story. And despite all of these sort of things that were happening in Nigeria, in West Africa during the 60s, we also got to really know these five main characters and how they interacted and the choices they made and the stupid choices some of them made and how that would affect the story, aside from the fact that there was a civil war going on. And uh, so I was engaged on the two levels. I was engaged on the personal story of these characters and then also just kind of figuring out what actually happened in Nigeria. And on a slight personal note... One of my uncles and aunt and their family lived in Nigeria in the early 1960s. So as I was reading this, I uh, messaged my cousin and I said, where did your family live and when? Because I'm reading this book. And it turned out it was the early 60s, so before the Civil War, and they were living in one of the bigger communities and working in an English language school and stuff. So they were gone by the time everything happened. But after I finished messaging, uh, she said, I've just ordered the book. So (laughs) she's going to read it, too. So, uh, you know, those are my initial thoughts.
0: I put off reading this book for quite a while. Uh, like, I started it three days ago. Oh, my God. Hmm. Um, because, uh, partly because I was thinking, well, I don't know that much about Nigeria. Like, Trevor, uh, I'm largely ignorant of Nigerian history. But I kind of felt like, uh, there's probably going to be some war stuff in here. And I wasn't really mentally ready for it. And then I started reading it. And the first like quarter of the book it's all about the characters and getting to know them and it's so well written it just drew me in it's so well characterized all all these characters seem real they have all these little flaws they have all these little individual quirks they're they were very fully realized to me I thought oh I don't know why I put this off for so long this isn't so bad <laughs> And then, I don't know, Adnigmo made a comment at one point about Katanga and uh, early on to Ugwu and I was thought, oh, you know, my ignorance is probably going to hold me back here. I should look up a little bit. So I looked up a bit about Katanga, and I thought it was a person's name, but it's a place name, and it's kind of foreshadowing in a way some of what comes with Afro. But by the time it got to the dark, gritty war stuff, I was fully invested in the characters. And so I had to keep reading, and of course I had a time limit because... I only finished it this morning. But I was so invested in the characters, I had to find out what happened to all of them. So I didn't find the the war stuff as off-putting as you did, just because I thought the author really illustrated the whole fog of war. All the news that comes, and you hear rumors, and then people are telling you no, and, and then sometimes it's yes, and no one knows exactly what to do. Everyone's guessing, everyone's struggling. Towards the end, I was feeling worn down by it, too. But that's because the characters are all being ground down, too. And yeah, I, I found it a very impressive book, but mostly on the strength of the characterization and of these people that felt like very real people to me. So I enjoyed the book more than I thought I would, although at the end I was feeling much more depressed about it than I thought I would, too.
2: I'm so surprised you read this book in three days. This book took me a lot longer to read than most books do. I just found it so dense. It wasn't a book I could sit down and just, you know, read 50 pages and time would fly by. Like I, it was kind of a book that I was like, okay, I I have to read this. You know, I'm, I'm enjoying it, but you know, we're going to be discussing it for the podcast.
0: So. Well, I'm not saying it was easy to read it in three days. I was pushing, I was pushing and there, every day I reached this point where I just couldn't read anymore. Mm -hmm. I had to stop and I had to do something to take my mind off of it for a bit because it, it
1: was really intense yeah when my experience of reading this book was i read it when i was on vacation and so a large percentage of my vacation time was spent in a hammock Mm -hmm. uh lakeside the most beautiful place you could imagine and yet i still kept coming back to this book it was like i had to return to 1960s war-torn nigeria and i couldn't put it down and i would again i couldn't figure out exactly like what it is but you're right it's the characters and i think Toby you made a, a, a super valid point yeah the the war scenes are are graphic and they're and they're shocking and uh, horrifying. And I, I think part of the reason why is because we do have this connection with the characters. And I was just reading the back of the, uh, the copy I have, which has a quote from the Globe and Mail review. And it starts by saying, heartbreaking. So, you, I, so even though the first section of the book, you meet the characters and, and, and you're intrigued, you know, something's going to happen. But I thought she did an amazing job with the structure, how she, she broke it up. So we, we got to, we got invested in the characters and then we saw the beginning of the war and how things were falling apart. But before it got too overwhelming. We went back and we saw before the war again, and we had some time with the characters. And then finally, when we were all intermeshed and caught up, then she does the run to the finish line, which is when things were the most dire and people were losing their their houses and their livelihoods and starving. And then at that point, I mean, the hooks were in. There's maybe 100 pages left. And I'm like, well, I I just have to power through this to get through to the end. And I thought that was a very kind of clever structuring of the book, because you're right. I think if it was chronological all the way through, the last half would be tough, 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 tough read. That was an interesting
0: switch up with the time too. Cause when we reached that point, you know, you're following the characters and stuff is happening. And all of a sudden it jumps forward to the late sixties and there's all this stuff that happened. Like, what do you mean, Richard's not coming by for evening hmm. talks anymore? What, what happened with Alana and Kanini? It, like what happened here? How come they're not, ta- how come she, the author is not telling us this stuff? and you're going along and it's like okay maybe we're just going to do some jumps in time and then when it jumps back it's like oh oh okay it was a very interesting choice but it worked
2: see i wasn't that impressed with the reveal that like the reveal the rift between olana and Kanene. like you see that there's something going on richard's not coming and you know like there's going to be something you find out and it was just like oh okay like It fell flat for me. Like, it just felt very writerly. Like, there was this thing that she inserted to just create some tension and... Yeah, I don't know.
0: So you were viewing it. You already had the meta figured out.
2: Yeah, it was also like I felt those excerpts from the book. I thought those fell a little flat. Like they just kind of come from nowhere. There's not enough of them. It also just felt very, very writerly. Like I I could see the author's brain wanting to put those in there.
1: Yeah, I didn't know what to make about those excerpts either, because when they, like you said, they come out of nowhere and they're not even really like word for word excerpts. It's more like chapter one he talks about this. And I'm yeah. like, well, who talks about what? And I'm assuming it's Richard Churchill. I think that's probably what she wants us to think. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, for yeah sure. that's, that's what right. I assumed for yeah, most yeah. of it. Yeah. And, uh, but then, it, yeah, you're right. And and it, sometimes it references things that haven't quite happened yet. Like that, that horrible bit with the, the woman with the basket at the oh, baby's yes. head. Yeah. I think it's mentioned in the story within the story before we actually,
2: yeah, uh, yeah, it experience,
1: is. Or before yeah. we, we were with Olana and experience it. So, uh, yeah. I, sometimes those little excerpts work well. I, this time, I thought they were more of a distraction than than anything.
2: There yeah. needed to be more of those excerpts, I think, in order mm. for it to work in this book. Like, what was there for in their, you know, half a paragraph? Mm. It's just, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't work for me.
0: I did find them confusing at the beginning. I did like the reveal at the end of the actual authorship, because th- I was not expecting that. I, I am reminded again of Kurt Vonnegut's comment about you know you have to put your characters through the ringer nobody really got off easy here <laughs> i mean out of mm-hmm. our main characters the ones that we were following closely there were a lot of characters you know you were mentioning how it was difficult to keep up with the names because mm-hmm. uh they're like nigerian names are kind of beautiful uh, i love the rhythm and appearance and sound of them but also yeah for my anglo brain it's hard to keep track of them but mm-hmm. i wasn't as bad as i thought it would be actually yeah. I was expecting more trouble with it. But by the end, I mean, I, I thought I would have to write down the character names like Odinigbo and uh, Ugu. And admittedly, Kanini is the name that I struggle with because I was pronouncing it Kanin in my head. Yeah. And it was only when we were discussing it before the show that uh, it was like, oh, yeah, that's probably how it's pronounced.
1: Yeah, and I find myself, at least in the early part of the book, having to constantly reference page 22, because that's the page where they describe the uh, the evenings in Odenikbu's home and all the people that come over usually. And so there's just a one-line description. So-and-so is this, you know, a visiting professor from here and stuff. And that's the only time you get any kind of actual background. And then they're often just referred to by their last name. So I have like, okay, who's this person again? Who's Dr. Patel? And then I have to go back and, and see. Yeah, again, it kind of goes to what you were saying, Dennis, about like the fog of war, that we're seeing things from these chapters from Uh, perspective and he doesn't know everything he's coming from the small village he's hasn't been formally educated and he's just sort of in sort of like cultural overload at this point taking it all in and just trying to keep up and that was okay though like i i was okay with not knowing every character's background and some characters come in and leave and i I didn't mind that part either i I kind of
0: felt like there were going to be a lot of characters and it didn't really matter too much i mean you yeah,
2: you know the s- five main, and that's kind of, yeah, yeah. that's and you, enough.
0: And you knew some people' names, it was like, that's familiar, probably because they were over for dinner and mm-hmm. discussion at Enigma's, Because that was like a revolving door of intellectuals or mm-hmm. interesting people
1: that would come for discussions, right? And there was a bit of that, and I thought there'd be more of it, but a bit of that sort of like who these people were before the war and then who these people were after the war? Certainly, we got that with the five main characters, and we got that a little bit with some of the secondary characters. But it was interesting how, as the book as the situation got more dire, I thought like the names became more kind of interesting. Like there was Special Julius <laughs> uh, yes. and High Tech, and yep. uh, you know, I just thought, okay, what's going on here now? <laughs> like we don't ever again like, we don't get a lot of information. He just seemed like he was like an interesting, like fun time guy who was uh, thriving during the war.
2: Special, special Julius? Julius.
1: Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh,
0: yeah, but he was uh, he was a profiteer, right? He was yeah. taking bribes, paying bribes, smuggling stuff. But a war, Friendly I mean, he's, he's a guy you want to know. Yeah, you want to know him. You want him to be able
1: to supply you stuff, but also he's not, not a great guy. No, oh. no, for sure. But, you know, if, you, if your guy is called Special Julius, you want to give him a little notion.
2: I thought Special was like a military designation. Oh, like. maybe... Lieutenant or Colonel.
1: I
0: didn't get that impression. No? Okay. no, also Special Julius wore those glittery outfits and stuff. You oh, know, yeah. he's
1: flashy. Mm-hmm. He's uh, he's special. Yeah, he's special. Yeah. I think his uh, his first name was Orange. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's grown. Didn't see that one coming. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I want to talk about Ugu and whether he can be redeemed at the end of this novel.
0: Oh, his character arc was something.
2: Yeah, Mm. because I mean, I think in many ways he's the heart of this story. He's such a good observer and he's really likable. He's just like he's a teenager. He's girl crazy. And does that maybe end up being his downfall? I still liked him at the end, Mm. despite the terrible things he had participated in during the war.
0: It was mainly the gang rape.
2: Yeah, and I guess the the bomb, but that's more well, all, impersonal.
0: Although, I mean, his character was the character that we got to see the Biafran military side from towards the end where things were desperate. It brought to mind all of the uh, child soldier stuff that had been in the news a lot in decades previous It's hard to blame a person for being in a situation where they're probably going to shoot you if you don't cooperate. And then you do things that you wouldn't do if you were not afraid for your life. But also there's the mix of, we have to win this war, and he believes in the cause. But also it's like he didn't want to do it, but also he still did. And yeah, the touch at the end where his sister had been raped by soldiers, he doesn't really talk about that at that point just that, you know, the author says he, he cried, you know, and it's like, yeah, can you imagine? That's complicated.
1: Mm-hmm. I saw a lot of parallels between Ugu and Odin Igbu as well. Like I saw them both as idealists at the beginning and throughout the books. Their idealism was withered away uh, when the reality of war came down, both of them had you know, mothers that they loved, but were problematic and who died during the war. And I guess with Onigbu being kind of the mentor and father figure, it's not surprising that Ugu would take after him. And of course, there's a nice touch of him dedicating the book to My Good Man at the end, which Mm -hmm. I thought was lovely. You're right. Like, I felt like he lost a big part of his humanity when he was conscripted and 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 forced to do those things, it doesn't excuse his actions, I don't think, and it doesn't explain them or forgive them. But then the question is, can we, as the readers, forgive him afterwards? And can we? Uh, it's it's a tough one. I, I it's like that Smith song. It's like, yes, I still love you, only slightly less, only <laughs> slightly less than I used to. And so, sort of like, I still like him. I still think he's a good person. I still, th- I mean, he's a person. He's a flawed person. All these characters were. No one got away looking squeaky clean but just sort of i guess the the extreme violence of what he what he took part in i mean i guess there was a part of me that when that gang rape scene was starting was that he would stand up he would Mm -hmm. you know he would be like okay guys or or he would somehow cause a distraction or somehow use that as as a chance to escape or something like that he was always kind of trying to you know uh, how can i get out of this and i thought well okay that maybe maybe his shame would be that he didn't stop it but he ran away but no you know it was worse he was a a full participant. But I agree with you, Toby. I, I still kind of liked him afterwards. And I felt like when he was back sort of in the in the bosom of his family or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I, was, I, don't know, I don't know.
0: I found that scene shocking. Like the moment when he did, like he, he had voiced his objection. He had tried to talk his way out of it briefly, but then he, then he did it. And that was a shocking moment. I did not expect that from Ugu. I did expect him to stand up and and, and to walk away like, I, ju- I just had a successful mission. I don't have to deal with this stuff, you know, something like that. Mm. But no, and it's still, yeah, it's hard to reconcile.
2: Yeah, you know, bad things are, are coming and I thought that he was going to get killed but, yeah, that was, that was not when it, what ended up happening.
0: No. And there's a theme about that all throughout, about people doing terrible things. And then can they be forgiven? Like both Odnigbo uh, cheating on Olana. Again, in, in difficult circumstances, I mean, he was set up. You know, his mom set him up, uh, worked hard to set him up. She used some black magic. He, he, or and, liquor, or, and liquor. Witchcraft. And liquor. A lot of liquor, and an attractive woman slipped into your bedroom at a a, a vulnerable time. It's like, yeah, that was... But still, he shouldn't have. And then Olana, cheating with Richard. And Richard, those are very hard things to forgive.
2: But in the context of war...
0: Yeah, suddenly it became easier because, like, you know, everything was being destroyed around them. And then we often have the idea as humans that our morality is, has a kind of an absolute nature to it. And what's right is right. And what's wrong is wrong. And we believe we'll never do what's wrong, especially what's really wrong. But we often underestimate the influence of circumstance on what we do. Interesting research I read about once, which is a little strange, but they were doing an experiment about people's thoughts about consent in sexual situations And the way they did the experiment was they had a bunch of young men, and this is always done on college students, right? A bunch of young men, they'd have a laptop and they had to do a survey about what they thought on a scale of like one to 10 on different scenarios and what was appropriate and what was inappropriate. And then they had the young men on that laptop watch pornography and masturbate and answer the questions again while they were getting close to orgasm.
1: Uh, you know, I remember uh, the, doing a psychology studies at university. It was, they did it not do that. Invite, no. <laughs> nope. Um, and then the answers drifted
0: for all of the participants.
2: Well, duh. well Yeah,
0: man. I wouldn't even be yeah. able to hold a pencil. <laughs> well, but I'm just saying, like, you know, you, want to say you, it? You, you have your idea of what you would do in a circumstance sure. when you are not in that circumstance. But when you are in the circumstance, things change. They change mentally and physically in your body. And we often don't know what we would do in a circumstance. So judging a person in an extreme circumstance is very difficult to do accurately because we will be doing it in a non-extreme circumstance. And that's one of the things about this book is that, I mean, everything that happens in war isn't as extreme a circumstance as you can be in generally. So it's really hard to know how to feel about things done in that context.
1: The whole thing with uh, Onigbu sleeping with Alana, and then and then Olana sleeping with Richard. That was all before the war actually started, though, right? Like, yeah. I think there's yeah. rumblings. That's the, like I don't really understand. But Olana's. then he might
2: have been cheating on her with that person in the in the village they were evacuated to.
1: Yes, exactly. Like I feel like even though Onigbu was yeah, sure maybe set up or whatever, but he's kind of was showing a pattern of being unfaithful. And even though I I liked him, I thought, yeah, this this guy. You know, I mean, he, he's, he's got his flaws, but what was uh, oh, Olana's... He, he had a lot of flaws. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. But what <laughs> I'm saying would, is that he, like it wasn't like he was, oh my gosh, I was drunk, and then, oh, I uh, woke up and I, I was next to a young lady. Uh, I, I didn't know what happened. You know, I mean, I think there was, I think he knew what he was doing. But Olana, I don't understand her motivation, like, is it like, what was it about? Was I mean, she angry. was hurt. She was angry. Yeah. But why do that? Why tr- kind of like seduce and trap Richard? I mean, Richard to me just seemed kind of like a sad sack guy. Like, I never understood what Kanye saw in him. You know, I just thought he was just, I don't know. I didn't. Of all the five mm-hmm. characters, I, I thought he was just kind of like kind of, a yeah, sad sack. I said, it? I'll, I'm glad I said it. <laughs> I,
2: I liked Richard. I think he was, he was a nice guy just trying to find somewhere to belong and I know he is kind of like like one of those people who goes to, like, Folklorama and then is like, let me tell you all about Nigeria. <laughs> um, but he's just, he has a good heart, I think, you know? <laughs>
0: I, I I felt like the relationship between Richard and Canini made a lot of sense. Yeah. Because she was very aloof because she had that whole resentment about her twin being the attractive twin and getting her parents approval and stuff. And so she set herself apart while still trying to get their approval by running the business really well and such. But she wanted to be separate. She didn't like the standard thing. She didn't like people sucking up because they're a wealthy family or stuff like that. She hated all of that stuff and she was cynical about it. And Richard responded to her, I think, her sense of being isolated because he felt isolated. He didn't feel like he had a place to belong. And so he was attracted to her and he didn't respond to her the way other people responded to her. So she was intrigued by him. It was they're both kind of mutual. Neither of them really fit in where they were. And neither of them really totally fit in with their own families or their own people. And they were separate. And they recognized that in each other. And so to me, their relationship made a lot of sense that way. They were kindred spirits, not identical. They came from different backgrounds. They had different reasons for why they felt that way. But there was a similarity right there in a key point in how they felt about themselves and the world. So their relationship made a lot of sense to me. And, I, you know, I get it, like, Alana's really attractive. Everyone was talking about how beautiful she was and, you know, he's connected to her. And, you know, so he gives in, I still think he was, you know, terribly wrong about it. But, and Olana, I don't know, I mean, she was hurting and she wanted to.
2: She's so insecure. Yeah. And yeah. so she
1: wanted to just hurt some, someone else kind of thing. Like she was hurting. So I'm going to ruin because she sees Richard and Kanye's having this good relationship. And she says, sees him as like low hanging fruit. He's like, yeah, he'll sleep with me. Because he he, does, he has no self he has no self esteem and I'm just gonna go in there like is that I mean, that's the part I just I couldn't quite get to, I do understand what you're saying about the relationship between Kanye and Richard and I don't know if either you had the, got the same kind of vibes but in their kind of courting scenes when they would meet at the hotel and they would say on the thing uh, I got a very kind of Rebecca feel between <laughs> uh, De Winter and the narrator how they would they would meet kind of on the side and go for drives and things I kind of anyway that's just an aside but but yeah o- Olana and Richard Now, what's going on there. I don't think Olana was
0: necessarily thinking about hurting her sister.
2: I think she was. You think? Yeah. I mean, they don't have the best relationship um, to begin with. And I think there's a lot of jealousy and animosity that goes both ways between Mm -hmm. them. And Richard is easy. Like, he's an easy target. Yeah.
0: But yeah. that, and that's what I thought was her motivation for choosing him. She's like, she's, she's in this emotional state, very vulnerable because of her uh, upset at what Obenigma had done. And she wants to respond to it somehow. And then there's Richard. And, and you're right. Richard is easy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He's an easy target. She's beautiful. She knows he kind of has a crush on her already because she can see that.
2: Everyone has a crush on her.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and so he's easy. And I think but I mean I don't know. It, it that's the thing. These are complicated characters and
1: Yeah, and, and like in Ellery Queen mystery, not everyone uh, acts rationally. You know, she's upset. She's angry. She's not going to maybe go out and like have a very kind of calculated plan. She's hurting emotionally. And people just kind of sometimes just do things. And then afterwards, they may not even be able to explain it to themselves why they did. I can yeah. buy that more than anything. It may- yeah. So, yeah, I just wouldn't know if you had extra insight. Because I to me, that was the part that I didn't quite get. Like, why him? Why that? Except I can by the idea that she was just like completely devastated by the infidelity. And she was you know, in a bad place,
0: emotionally, yeah. for sure. It's
1: probably not more complicated
0: than that. And the other reason it was probably Richard is just that it ties it up nicely for a novel and promotes the maximum mm-hmm. tension possible. And he's
2: just sticking it to Susan in every way he can. <laughs>
1: <Don't worry. laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Speaking of Susan. I'd almost forgotten about Susan. <laughs> yeah. I thought one of the real clever things that Adichie did in this book is that All these characters kind of are archetypes of different people that would have been in Nigeria in the 60s. Like Susan represents the expat colonialist, has a very kind of paternalistic idea of Nigeria and Britain's role in it. Uh, Richard is this idealist who's going in there because he wants to have an adventure and see the, the culture. Uh, Onigvu represents the intellectual revolutionary side, the idealist, the looking at things from a new perspective, from a progressive uh, perspective. And Olana and Kanye, they they represent the nouveau riche family and her parents and how they're, they're working with the system that is not good for the people of the country, but they're good for the people that have the money and and stuff and I thought even though these are all sort of like calculated characters to represent different people, they never felt to me like they were one-dimensional characters. I felt like she really developed all the characters well. Even the Meyer characters. This happened to represent people that she wanted to draw the story of the whole war in that, that decade in Nigeria out. They were the faces of these ideas. Again, I will say
0: the characterization in this book was excellent. I don't know if I've read any more realistic characters in a novel. In a long time, they just all really felt real.
2: Who is your favorite character?
0: <sighs> the white guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I felt more in, most in common with Richard. There's the thing, like I like different things about them. Like, Adini, I liked her strength and uh, independence. And even though she was like cynical and could be off-putting sometimes, when it came down to it, she's out there and she's doing the work and she's making sure things get done right. I, I liked that a lot. I, I felt like Olana was the most innocent of the characters in a lot of ways. You know, her sister resented her for her beauty and their parents' approval, but it's not like she really wanted that. She just kind of went along with things because she was more of a people pleaser. I don't know. Odenigmo, I think, annoyed me the most. <laughs> Cause he was so, he was
2: really useless, especially during the war. He did nothing
0: when he was blind to everything around him. Like he brushed off things like, Oh yeah, I slept with her. It meant nothing. Uh, you know, just ignore that. And he would like be blind to really obvious things because he had to be a certain way because of his, uh, idealism and his, you know, this is how it should be. So he was very flawed and, and could have been, could have been dangerous in some ways, you know? It's really hard to pick a favorite character, though. How about yourself?
2: I liked Kanene a lot. I liked just how no nonsense she is. She's a little enigmatic. She's really tough. She's a you know great at her job. I felt like there were so many scenes with her in it where characters would say many words, and then she would come in and just have like one sentence that just like cut right to the chase. Mm-hmm. We don't get closure on her character. I mean, I guess we can assume she's dead, which is very, very sad and tragic. But it felt right, I guess.
0: Felt right in the, that it was one of the more devastating. Yeah. See, I thought I thought we would lose Ugu. Mm. I was surprised when he came back. Because I thought that was going to be the gut punch. It was kind of a switch up. Yeah. Oh, you're going to lose Ugu. No, nope. You're going to lose Kanini instead.
2: Yeah, because Ugu is so likable. And so it would be more more of an impact maybe if he was the one
1: yeah and he was the character we've known the longest he's been in the most sort of pages if you want to you know look at it that way and he you're right there's five main characters but I really think Ugbu was the, the protagonist I think
0: so who's your favorite
1: Oh, it's so hard to say. Uh, each character had had things I liked about it. I know you guys were kind of uh, dunking on Odin Igbo, but I, <laughs> I, I kind of liked him. Like I gotta say, like, I, you know, the way he always referred to him as my good man, and I, I just liked the idea that he kind of took Igbo under his wing and uh, introduced him to this life that he wouldn't have found in, any other way. And yeah, I didn't like the fact that he was uh, unfaithful, but I just would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in some of those early living room meetings where they're they're playing the high life music and they're they're drinking and they're having all these discussions about the political future of Africa. And I just kind of trying to close my eyes and imagine what that would have been like. So yeah, I've had to pick one character, maybe him, although with a huge asterisk behind it, saying yeah, the guy had to, you know issues, things I did not like about him. Yeah, I will say he had a big heart.
0: Like, his idealism seemed genuine. Like, he really, really wanted all these good things for the whole country, for his people.
1: Yeah, but there comes a point when his idealism, like, becomes toxic. You know, where, where, Like, yeah. you know, his wedding is bombed. And it's sort of like, oh, well, no, it's okay. We can still, you know, do this other thing. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what point where I could have said to him, okay, enough, enough. <laughs> but probably earlier than I, I'm remembering. Yeah. Dude, look around. Yeah.
2: Yeah, he's like a lot of academics. It's like all talk and no action.
1: That's <laughs> true. Yeah. And the funny thing is he wasn't even like a politics prof. He was a math prof. Yeah. But he, yeah, but he was in the, in the academia world, right, where their ideas are bounced around. And uh, Unsuka tended to be sort of a uh, hotbed of political thought during the time. So I just
0: realized we're talking a little longer than we usually do. So we should mm. probably wrap up. Does anyone have final comments about this book before we move on?
2: I would just suggest that if you liked this one, read Americana, because while I was so-so about this one, I love Americana.
0: You know, we do have a whole what-book-would-you-recommend saying huh?
2: I know, which I did. <laughs> I don't like choosing another book by the same author, so I'll put a plug for it right now. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, just, all I'd say is I feel like this kind of book is the best kind of book for me. It transports you to another time and place effortlessly that you don't want to leave, even though that time and place is war-torn. And a lot of the characters that you like do dumb things. I loved it. And uh, I would now, it's going to be one of these books I'm going to recommend to people at the library when they ask uh, that great question I always get. Could you recommend a good book? I'll say, too,
0: I would recommend this one as well. It's very well written. Not because she used a lot of fancy words really cleverly. It's just because she used really good words to carry you along and describe characters that just, it, it flowed. Everything flowed. It all made sense. And you care about what happens to the characters so yeah great book and that leads us into the segment that toby's already kind of jump-started <laughs> can you tell me a book i would also like so since you weren't recommending okay. americana <laughs> what are you
2: um so i am recommending the book homegoing by yag yasi um this has a lot of similarities to half of the yellow sun it's historical fiction it's set in africa and it also deals with sisters, but in homegoing, they're half sisters and they're unknown to each other. They're born in different villages in Ghana in the 18th century. And so the narrative follows these two half sisters. One is married to an Englishman and lives in comfort and stays in Ghana. One is imprisoned and sold as a slave and shipped off to America. And the novel really just is about how their different circumstances shape their lives and those of their children and their children's children. So you start in 18th century Ghana. You end up all the way in 20th century Harlem. I find it's less heavy-handed with the history than Half of the Yellow Sun. It's more about the characters and the relationships. It really just explores the history through the characters, not in an overt, let me tell you about this specific moment in history. It doesn't sound like on the surface, the, I feel like this book doesn't sound great, but it it's phenomenal. It is so well written. I can't say enough good things about it. So that is Homegoing by yeah, Yassi.
1: Well, uh, the book that I picked, uh, when I looked it up again, I could not believe this book was published in 1998. So just another example of the the cruelty of time. But the book that I'm thinking of is uh, The Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver, which I had read when it came out. And like Half of Yellow Sun, it takes place in Africa during the 1960s, but instead of Nigeria, it takes place in the Belgian Congo in a slightly earlier time frame, like 1960, early 60s. But it's told from the perspective of a missionary family. Sort of a Southern evangelical family that go to the Congo to do God's work in the Congo, and one thing after the other happens to this family, and it's it's told in a uh, interesting way, where each chapter is told by a different member of the family. Everyone except the father gets a voice. So there are, I believe, there's four sisters and the mother. And so each of them take turns telling part of the story. And it does follow along closely what happens in the Congo. And uh, again, just like Half of the Yellow Sun, I felt it does a great job of um, telling a story, a family story with uh, with compelling characters, but at the same time, able to tell us about a, a place and time in history that things happened, but through fiction. So yeah, uh, If uh, I think it was very popular at the time when it came out. but I would recommend The Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver.
0: I haven't read anything quite like this book before, uh, so I'm going to cheat a little bit and recommend a book that we've read before on the podcast and maybe the only other book that I've read that's set in Nigeria. And that is The Death of Vivek Oji by Akweki Emizi. We discussed it on our podcast in January 2022. I'll read the quick description. Raised by a distant father and an understanding but overprotective mother, Vivek suffers disorienting blackouts, moments of disconnection between self and surroundings. As adolescence gives way to adulthood, Vivek finds solace in relationships with the warm, boisterous daughters of the Niger wives, foreign-born women married to Nigerian men. But Vivek's closest bond is with Osita, the worldly, high-spirited cousin whose teasing confidence masks a guarded private life. As the relationship deepens and Osita struggles to understand Vivek's escalating crisis, the mystery gives way to a heart-stopping act of violence in a moment of exhilarating freedom. Like Half of a Yellow Sun, The Death of Vivek Oji features great storytelling and great characters. I still think about it periodically. It just pops into my head sometimes. Some of the lines in there are really strong and just, I don't know, some of the imagery just doesn't go away.
2: There's some drama between Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and that author. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I should say it or if you just wanna everyone can go look it up.
0: Um Is it something that would be scandalous
1: to say?
2: Uh it's a little scandalous. Okay. It might well, change your opinion of Nagosiadici.
1: Is it some kind of hanky panky?
2: Uh no. Hmm.
1: We'll we'll leave it as
0: an exercise for the reader, Uh, but now you've got me intrigued and I'll have to remember to look this up.
2: I'll tell you after we uh, stop recording. (laughs) Okay.
0: There's a teaser segment. Uh, So let's move on then to our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, where in our panel shares a word or phrase that held our attention recently. Anyone got a good word?
2: You said my word earlier, so I'm going to just go for it it's high life um which is yeah a type of music that's referenced throughout this book that i had no idea about until reading this book Uh, did you know about high life before this book it
0: was my nerd word too (gasps) oh no um i thought oh are are one of them kind of should i have a backup
1: word i didn't have a backup word but go ahead
2: okay well maybe you'll have some things to add
1: (laughs) i can't wait to hear what you both have to say about high life music
2: (laughs) It's a genre that started in Ghana in the 19th century. I guess I have a bit of a Ghanaian theme this month. Uh, it combines African meter with Western jazz. It's characterized by jazzy horns and multiple guitars. After World War II, it became quite popular with the Igbo people of Nigeria, who combined high life with Igbo traditional music. And it was the country's most popular music genre in the 1960s, so historically accurate. And Rex Lawson is mentioned uh, throughout this book. He was one of the best-known high-life musicians of the 1960s. During the war, he actually wrote a song called Hail Biafra, which he sang in praise of Lieutenant Colonel Ojukwu. He's also credited for being the first to play the Biafra National Anthem at the Proclamation of Biafra's Secession, which I don't, I don't know how accurate that is but you can find it on youtube it's very very joyful music music you can groove to it's um it's hard to picture it as the soundtrack to this very dark serious book about war but there you go high life do you what do you have anything to add to that
0: um well just that was mostly what i was going to say Um, but there were different forms of high life music Mm -hmm. too like the original stuff was more big band um and was more like calypso influenced apparently and then it developed over time that there would be also a more rural version, which was guitar-based, uh, which is more like Rex Lawson. So there were different styles within High Life, and High Life has continued to develop. It's got synthesizers now, uh, amongst other things, and it's still a popular form of music, especially among uh, Ghanaians. I listened to some of the Rex Lawson stuff while I was reading Hmm. Uh, I think it especially matches up, well, with the early part of the book where they're doing their, you know, meetings at the house and stuff. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, it didn't have drums uh, so much as percussion. And uh, the rhythms of the guitar were interesting. Like, it's jazzy, but it's also not Dizzy Gillespie or anything. Like, it's its, it's a own thing. But, uh, yeah, really interesting style of music. I enjoyed
1: I was just going to add to that that uh, I discovered a, uh, a High Life playlist on Spotify that I also have uh, given a listen to. And yeah, it's very groovy. You can put it on and just kind of, you know, it's music I've never heard before, so it's unfamiliar, but it's upbeat. And uh, I suppose some of the lyrics can be tied into, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, freedom and uh, and all the optimism that was in the, in the 60s. But yeah, I've, I've been listening to a little bit of High Life. I was going to
0: hopefully say that we had some Rex Lawson albums on Hoopla, but we do not. Um, so you're going to have to go to YouTube or something else to find Rex Lawson specifically. known. Well, he, mind- he
2: died quite young, so yeah. I think maybe before things could be recorded in a way that would translate digitally. I don't know.
0: No, no, it just would have been the old recordings, but I could yeah. have done it. There's yeah. other stuff like that. But also he's also sometimes known as Cardinal Rex Jim Lawson is like a full name.
1: Super interesting, you guys. I uh,
0: enjoy it. Did you also pick High Life? I did not.
1: <laughs> okay. My my word came out of a crossword puzzle that I did this past month, but I felt it was probably appropriate for the book that we just read, how it has to uh, do with uh, war. And so the word I have chosen is shrapnel. Hmm. Now, shrapnel is, we probably all have an idea of, is like the bits of a bomb or a bullet or whatever that break away and, and can cause damage.
2: Decapitate someone.
1: Exactly right, uh, yeah. And I always, I never really thought of the word shrapnel as a word. I always assumed maybe it was like one of those words that sounds like the thing it is, you know, because shrapnel, shrap, it sounds like something breaking or whatever. But no, it's actually named for its inventor Henry Shrapnel, who uh, lived from uh, 1761 to 1842, and he was an English artillery officer. I mean, I also probably like a mad scientist because his his project was to try to create a, a bomb or projectile. That caused the maximum damage and casualties. So what so what this Henry uh, shrapnel did was he created uh, a projectile that would originally be launched, uh, I guess, from a cannon, and inside it there were all these little sort of small shot or spherical little bullets made of lead, and it was timed so that when this thing was launched, just before it was going to land, there was a charge that would go off that caused the, the projectile to explode, causing all these little balls of shot to go everywhere, to scatter, and to uh, cause maximum damage, which is kind of frightening and disgusting and uh, kind of innovative for the uh, 1800s. Uh, shrapnel caused the majority of the artillery-inflicted wounds in World War I, However, by the time World War II came around, the armaments were more powerful, and they discovered that the sheer explosion of, of the bomb or the charge was sufficient to cause maximum damage just from the pieces. And so they, they saved money and design by not putting the little balls in the bombs anymore. Just the, the bomb itself was deadly enough. So, yeah, shrapnel. Horrible thing, but named for a person. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if you guys knew that or not. I was. I was. I did not. I was surprised. Fun note about cannons, as fun
0: as cannons can be. Uh, like in the Civil War, when they fired cannons, like they didn't explode and have a lot of shrapnel or anything. It was just this big ball coming at you at high speed. But it went in kind of a straight line and it bounced. Uh, so if you, it might bounce right past you or right over you or whatever, and then no damage at all. Or it could go right through you. Oh God. But it would be the whole cannonball hitting you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Weapons of war are not pleasant. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss Hell of a Book by Jason Mott. In Hell of a Book, an African-American author sets out on a cross-country book tour to promote his best-selling novel. That storyline drives Jason Mott's novel and is the scaffolding of something much larger and more urgent. Since his novel also tells the story of Soot, a young black boy living in a rural town in the recent past, and The Kid, a possibly imaginary child who appears to the author on his tour. Throughout, these characters' stories build and build, and as they converge, they astonish. For while this heartbreaking and magical book entertains and is at once about family, love of parents and children, art and money, there's always the tragic story of a police shooting playing over and over on the news. Who's been killed? Who's the kid? Will the author finish his book tour? And what kind of world will he leave behind? Unforgettably powerful and electrifying high-wire act ideal for book clubs, and the book Mott says he has been writing in his head for ten years, hell of a book in its final twists truly becomes its title have comments or book suggestions for us, send us an email. You can also find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us too. And until next time, make sure you find Time to Read.
2: should have said, see you, see on, you on the, the flippity-flip. <laughs> 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 I missed my missed my chance. Oh.
0: Was that going to be the sign-off from now? Well,
2: I, I wrote the blog post for last month, and Trevor ah. always signs off with time to read, but I switched it up.
0: Yeah. It, was, it was a delight.